Welcome back to Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel, and it is hot in the home office upstairs where I record this, Danny. It is. Oh, uh, I don't know, Christian. I'm not sure if I'm going to tolerate that. You got like 95% humidity, 90% humidity. Are you living in a concrete jungle? I don't know as someone living in Manhattan if I'm going to allow someone in the Pacific Northwest to complain about heat. Okay. Is, is there any part of your apartment that is, is not cooled by air conditioning? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yes. Are you sitting in it right now? Uh, no. No, I'm okay. not. Okay. So, you know. <laughs> and you're upstairs. Is it have an arched roof? Uh, it does not. Oh, okay. Depending well, it is. It does. I should. It does have an arched roof, but it is like a. It's like three quarters of a story. Okay. Okay. I could see that getting a little hot. I could see that being a little stuffy. I have no real right to complain. We have <laughs> we have a we have a ductless heat system downstairs that uh, keeps everything nice and cool and and just. Yeah, it gets it's too it's too hot, man. Anything over seventy five in the Pacific Northwest, it just it's not. We're not built for this. Uh, we're halfway through August. Yeah, the season draws nearer. It does. How's this? How's the squad starting to look? Starting to round into shape? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, they're getting tired of. Uh, they're getting tired of, of hitting people wearing the same color jersey. Oh, have tell. we gotten to that one that. yet? It, it's time. To, it's time to get out there and get really excited because you get to. It's it's time to show everybody else what you got. Yeah, you know those shoulder pads come on and and uh, things start to get a little chippy when the pads come on, Danny. Little, I love more violent. I love the. It's going to be time for some fights. Like when everybody, yeah. it's like the the reporters are just like come across as so bloodthirsty when they write that one. Like I remember <laughs> Ted Ted Miller in the PI writing some talking about when the pads go on, the spittle will fly. I'm like, that's such a weird thing to be excited about. Dudes like ex- expectorating, like spit coming out of their mouths. So strange. Certain reporters are always like so intent on getting who was that who started it and who was that who threw the who threw the left hook and who was getting every single guy who was involved in every practice fight I haven't see, actually s- have not seen a lot of like spring was pretty was pretty chippy for for these guys I haven't seen a lot of fights this uh this preseason camp that's i've over the last few years i have successfully uh excised the term fall camp from my vocabulary because mm-hmm. it, you no know, part of it happens in fall <laughs> oh, i like that like a seasonal stickler. Yeah. Uh, Do- I will say our editors at The Athletic were very intent on uh, eliminating the use of bye week and instead referring to it as an idle week or an off week because a, a bye is supposed to be something that actually like grants you advancement in some sort of tournament setting. It's an advantage. It's a you don't have to play while everyone else does and you just get to move on to the next round type of thing, which an off week in college football isn't actually, but I'm I'm going to hold on to that one because by whatever it's a bye week they have a bye. Yeah, I'm going to say that that one sounds like an annoying copy editor. Like there mm-hmm. are annoying copy editors, and then like point like valid points that co- some copy editors make. That one's on the everybody knows what you're saying with bye. You have a bye this week. Like every everybody knows what that means in college football. There's no. When there was a copy editor at the Seattle Times who was insistent on not using preseason um, because he thought it was public relations, essentially like a way for the NFL to dress up uh, a meaningless game. And that one I could see, like saying preseason, even though we all know what it means, like 
I, I kind of liked the idea of calling it a practice game. <laughs> Like, I thought that was funny. They An played a practice game. <laughs> there, at least there's a little, like, fight the power to that one. Yes, yes. That's exactly You're, what it is. What do you accomplish by by, by, say, by eliminating bye week? Yeah, we're not fighting the power by, by cutting out bye week. And you could maybe make the same argument for fall camp, but I'm a weirdo, and I just, you know, it, you say fall camp, everyone knows what you're talking about. But there's just, like, there's this part, en- enough of a portion of my brain that thinks it's not fall. It's not fall. It's summer camp. We're still in summer. Well, there, there's also something, too. At different points, training camps have been held away from the normal facility. Like, the Seahawks used to have training camp at Eastern Washington. Which was always funny because those NFL players would be living in college dorms. Like that cracked me up that that they would they would have the NFL players like Walter Jones as a perennial Pro Bowler is living in a dorm in Eastern Washington. It's hilarious to me. Um, it made sense when it's like that, even though they're not really camping. Like that, it's it's an event that takes place separate from the facility. Now <laughs> there's not I. At one point, I believe Neuheisel, they used to practice, have fall camp down at Evergreen, I think. They did. Because there was one time a hippie came out to talk to Neuheisel about some, like, nutritional suggestions. And Neuheisel, true to his nature, was, like, very indulgent and polite to him. <laughs> Where I, I'd like to imagine what Jim Lambright or Don James would have said. <laughs> Somebody come and talk to them about their plant-based alternatives. <laughs> like, get out of here, hippie! hippie. That hippie grew up to be Charlie Whitehurst. <laughs> Feel old yet? Oh, uh, yeah. 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 No. Charlie Whitehurst just looked like a hippie. He did. I I know he dated Jewel for a while. Like, that guy's lived a life, man. Like, That's that so guy bad. That guy has lived. He has he has enjoyed and relished um, and milked every bit out of what was a negligible NFL career. Yeah, and good. Hey, good for him. I, anybody mm-hmm. who can make that much money uh, standing on the sideline and not having to put their um, their their head health at risk, that's Dude. it's good work if you can get it. Yeah, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say it's like something everyone should aspire to, but like getting paid the most for as little work as possible, like there's something to be said for that. There's there's, uh, there's absolutely there's absolutely something to be said for that. It's the American dream, baby. I'm I'm beginning to realize that I'm kind of running out of angles on this team for for this preseason camp because you kind of knew what they were heading into it. I think even like in the secondary or the offensive line where they're replacing guys and there was some question, they kind of sorted most of that out in the spring. You will see, you know, I know they cut talking to Juice Brown, the cornerbacks coach on Tuesday. He was pretty insistent that that other cornerback spot opposite Jabbar Muhammad is still up for grabs and that they'll sort that out this week. Um, just based on the reps, it, I have a really hard time believing it won't be Elijah Jackson, mm-hmm. um, especially the way that they've talked about him like all spring and all offseason. But Thaddeus Dixon's still there, and, and um, uh, Devon Banks is back healthy, and, and he's, he's kind of been in the mix. Darren Barkins, the transfer from Oregon, has gotten some reps. And kind of similarly on the O-line, um, Mateo Mele is the center. Ryan Grubb has come out and said that. Julius Bulow and Nate Kalepo have been the guards. They've mixed in Parker Brailsford and Garen Hatchett some. So, like, we'll see if those guys can push. I still, again, like at cornerback, kind of think that what you saw all spring and what you've seen most of camp will be what you see against Boise State. But for the most part, I mean, everything's 
they got a lot of veterans. They got a lot of returners. There was the little sort of mini micro drama with Mike Penix in his arm, but he's back and looks totally fine. So I don't know, man. I They, they kind of just seem to be who they are and trying to get through these next couple weeks without any injuries and, and get to the season and away they go. Now, I know Penix is back. Did he did he come back for the scrimmage? Was that when he, he started throwing fully again? He was back for the scrimmage. He They had an off-site practice. They were at the VMAC one day that week, and I don't know if he they, they, that was closed. We weren't out there or anything. So he it's possible he could have thrown that day too. But he definitely he took he took the number one reps at the scrimmage and then again on on Tuesday. We're not going to know like whether that was a big deal or not really until until the season starts and even then you might not know because unlike most situations where you worry about reps like the question isn't reps or familiarity like it's entirely how his arm was feeling and so if he felt even the slightest fatigue or tinge, like there's no twinge, there's no reason for him to throw more. So you mm-hmm. can't you can't ever tell. But that in some cases makes it kind of hard to tell like, oh, because it's it's not a super normal thing to say, OK, we've got to dial back the number of throws that our quarterback makes. Like it's not that's not standard, but it also might not be serious, right? Like it might not. And it's not going to affect whether or not he plays like you just look at it and you're like it's it's not the best sign I just don't know how bad a sign it is and it might actually mean nothing so those are those can be things that it's kind of hard hard to tell Matt Flynn had a fatigued arm in 2012 and when he got a fatigued arm you're like that's a terrible sign because he's actually playing to win a job so if he's not throwing right now it means he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't feel like he's capable of doing the job if because otherwise he would be out there competing for it. Um, with Penix, it's different because there's nothing there's nothing that he can gain by being on the field. It's just that he's not there. So it makes you like you arch an eyebrow of concern. That's it. Just you arch a single eyebrow in concern. I, I almost wonder if it's something that he wouldn't have even like brought up if this were the middle of the season. Yeah, like, or or if it was last season, like if it was training camp last year, yeah, fall camp. Yeah. If it was fall camp last year, <laughs> Christian, <laughs> fall camp in August. No, I would he have brought it up? Like honestly, I don't think he would. I I don't, and it certainly isn't going to affect like him playing on Saturdays. You just you don't want your quarterback to have like a less than one hundred percent arm because it's kind of important. Yeah, I I think like if it's you know, October 13th and it's, Hey Mike, how's your arm feel? It's probably great. But uh, yeah, on August 9th or whatever, Hey Mike, how's your arm feel? Eh, it's all right. It's a little sore. I threw a lot the last three days. Okay. You are not throwing for the next three practices. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's just a very easy decision to make with your sixth year senior. I'm, I'm going to say millionaire quarterback, maybe not actually a millionaire, but his compensation might be, might be in that, that range. But did you see where he was listed? Like ESPN came out with its top 100 college football players. Yeah, number six, number six. And I appreciate that. It's not a draft ranking. Like it's it, that it's about them in college football, but still number six, like that was, that was much higher than I expected. Number six and the uh, the number three quarterback behind. So Caleb Williams, number one, as a lot of people would guess. Then Drake May for North Carolina is number five. I feel like there's um, 
I was almost a little surprised to see him ahead of Jordan Travis, Florida State's quarterback. He kind of seems to be the the trendy, like if we're assuming the Heisman winner is not going to be Caleb Williams again, I think a lot of people would put their chips on Jordan Travis. Uh, Florida State had the, the bounce back year last year, and, and he was pretty impressive. But, um, yeah, so pe- they've, they've, got, uh, they've got four guys on this list. It's pretty impressive. Four guys in the top 50, I think. Yeah. I mean, you look what uh, Odunze, Odunze is 20. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like you're seeing that's 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 certainly more firepower. I did not expect to see that many Washington players up that high, in part because I assume a fair amount of of East Coast bias when it comes to these lists. Yeah. Uh, Layatu Latu, also 49th, one spot behind Jalen McMillan. Yeah. I mean, it's... I don't want to say like yeah, it's a little bit, and then Braylon Trice is is sixty second. I don't want to say that like that's oh I was I was but I was I was surprised to see that that number and Washington was tenth in the AP poll, so there's certainly a fair amount of buzz about the team nationally. Like this is not going to be a year where if they're successful, they have to play their way into anyone's consciousness. People are paying attention. Does it bother you? What? That that you're not rooting for the underdog this year? <laughs> no, no, I have zero. <laughs> I th- there is there is no part of me that finds it more satisfying. I don't I don't like hearing people talk about proving people wrong or anything else like that. Like I no, I would, and especially in college football because there are legitimate things. I don't think there's anything Michael Penix could have done last year to win the Heisman Trophy because people weren't paying enough attention to him soon enough. Like it's yeah. just it wasn't it wasn't going to happen. It's hard on the West Coast anyway, as we've seen with a couple of different Stanford running backs. Like the idea that Christian McCaffrey didn't win it that year is absurd. The the notoriety that Washington has is actually important. Like it actually, Michael Penix does have a chance to win the Heisman Trophy this year. He did not last year, and I think that's a good thing. Um. So interestingly enough, twenty four seven Sports also put out its top one hundred fo- players in college football list. Uh, would you like to guess who Washington's highest-ranked player on this list is and who it is? Well, it should be Penix. He's the quarterback. Is it not Penix? It is not Penix. Is it Rome? It is not Rome. Whoa! ZTF? It's not ZTF. <laughs> is it Braylon Trice? It is Braylon Trice. How high is he? They have him number nine. Really? Yeah, they they have Braylon Trice as a top ten. And listen, I I wouldn't be surprised if the NFL draft kind of bears that out. Not saying like I think he'll be the number nine pick, but I don't think anybody's going to be surprised if he's a first rounder. And if you've got a first round edge rusher, I don't think it's like out of pocket to say that that guy has top ten national player caliber, right? How many defensive players do they have in front of him? Um, Do they have the kid from Florida State who most people assume is the top D end? It's I think his last name's Verse. They have two. They they have Braylon Trice one spot ahead of Jared Verse. Really? So uh Harold Perkins, the linebacker from LSU, yeah, is, yeah. is number six. And Kool-Aid McKinstry, the corner from Alabama, is number seven. Those are the I only would... defensive players uh ranked higher than Braylon Trice. Wow. So, because then, then there's there's also an edge from Georgia that's really good. Um, I think he's a sophomore, and I think it's Michael Williams, but it might be Mikel. I'm not sure on the pronunciation of his first name. Um, 
That's interesting that he's ahead of verse. Most NFL people consider verse, and this is where you get into sort of the different types of edge rushers. Um, I don't know as much how people in the NFL see verse or see um see trice like if they see him as an elite speed edge rusher like my sense has been and from talking to a couple people that ztf is the one who's who fits more of that format where trice is more of a well-rounded defensive end and that's not a knock on him but the the reason edge rushers their speed off the edge like that's what separates somebody like brian burns with carolina like what Mm -hmm. what they're looking for is this guy who's just a burner coming off the edge and can kind of turn the corner and they'll talk about their ability to get low to the ground and and pivot i don't know if i don't know if trice is seen in that category like i don't i don't think braylon trice will be drafted ahead of verse from florida state because verse fits that mold of like that that guy you set out on the edge and you're like if he gets one-on-one with the tackle we're going to expect him to get to the quarterback i had this is only tangentially related but i had to laugh talking with with odunze and braylon trice over the last couple weeks like them just definitively talking about this season that as if it is their last season um which is obvious we all know it's their last season but each of those guys does have a year of eligibility left yeah. So like I with I think Odunze was talking about moving to the Big Ten and he was he said something like, yeah, I mean, Lord willing, this time next year, I'll I'll be out of here. But, <laughs> you know, that'll be fun for all these guys and try talking about it being his last year. And I was like, you know, you don't want a sixth year. And he was just like, nah, he made that. I'm, I'm making the motion, the, the thumb over the shoulder. Like, I'm out. I'm out of here. Yeah. Uh, uh, Penix is can- 21st on on 24 sevens ranking. Can I make one observation about, um, and this is probably speaks to my, like my weird biases. I would have some real reservations about ranking a quarterback from North North Carolina as high as people are ranking Derek may. And that has nothing to do with anything other than quarterbacks who have come out of North Carolina before (laughs) more specifically like Mitchell Trubisky. Like when's the last time? Cause there've been some very prominent, there've been some very prominent quarterbacks at North Carolina. Um, I'm even going to think there was, I think Ronald Curry went to North Carolina as a quarterback and he was playing basketball as well. And he ended up playing in the NFL as a tight end. There's a dude named Chris Keldorf who was, I don't know how well regarded he was, but he was like a big dude. Like (laughs) all these college quarterbacks that come out of North Carolina. Like I don't recall any of them being good. And I just look at Derek may and I'm like, okay, we'll see. Like I, I have a hard time taking him seriously because of the school, which is kind of ridiculous. But that's how I feel. You're you're the old guy. You're the old scout at the table in Moneyball, who's like doesn't doesn't want to look at any of the analytics. You're just like, yeah, but he goes to North Carolina. There's a little bit of that. Yes, like there's a little bit of that. Like, and maybe it traces back to Luke Hewitt. Like, I mean, I'm being fully honest here about like where I'm like, yeah, like that place has been like a Bermuda Triangle. Like, great prospects have gone there, and I don't remember any of them doing squat in the NFL, even when they've been highly drafted, like Mitchell Trubisky. In fact, I think I think North Carolina was a knock that I held against Trubisky, and his experience only reaffirms my bias. It's oh, more entrenched. It. It's only emboldened you. That's exactly right. Hell yeah. I'm prejudiced against quarterbacks out of UNC. Uh, Panic's 21st on this ranking. Odunze 33rd. And uh, Jalen McMillan 64th. 
Should Jalen Polk be on any of these lists? Um, I think that would be asking too much, but it, I'd be like, I put it this way. I'd be really interested to see what kind of season Jalen Polk could have if this team were exactly the same, but Romo Dunze and Jalen McMillan weren't on it. Cause I oh, think that's, I think that that dude is a legit number one on like a lot of, he probably, you know, probably the most ideal uh, position for both him and team would be for him being a number two guy. So like the fact that they get to have him as a number three, two years in a row is kind of an embarrassment of riches sort of thing. Um, but he could, he could be a number one for a lot of to like, you know, I, I think there's, there's some number one receivers across the country who you'd put Jalen Polk next to him. And, and I don't know that you'd be able to say, yeah, he's not as good as that guy. So I think Jalen Polk will play on Sundays. I don't I don't think he'll be drafted as highly as either Rome or Jalen McMillan, but I have a lot like I think pretty highly of definitely Rome. Like I th- I think Rome's a stud and I like Jalen McMillan a lot too, and I think Jalen Polk is right there with McMillan and the chances of him being number 2 or I don't think he'll lead the team in receiving, but I, man, he's really good. He's a really good player. Um, and I think, I think that he is going to end up surprising a lot of people because they only fixate on the top two receivers on Washington's depth chart. I think Jalen Polk would be a name people know by the end of the season. Yeah, I agree. So he was, he was second in the Pac-12 in receiving among number three receivers last year. And Tetaroa McMillan at Arizona, who I think is, I think he's going to be a superstar. He's just, he is unbelievable. I mean, he's six five. He's huge. He killed, he killed the Huskies in that game. Um, I think he'll be a thousand yard guy this year. Or at least he'll have a chance to be. He was the only number three receiver in the league last year who had had better numbers than J- Jalen Polk did. And it's not even just about like the season, the total season numbers that he puts up, because some of that's dictated by you know, game script or however you want to say it. Um, Did, you know, did they need to throw a ton of passes to all three of their top receivers? And was he maybe a little bit banged up here or there? And Taj Davis got some reps instead of him. Just the the fact that nobody will ever be surprised if Jalen Polk goes for 120 yards and two touchdowns. I mean, he put up, he put up three touchdowns against Michigan state. He seemed like he was open deep all the time. I think he had six touchdown catches on the season and like five of them were really memorable, like big plays. Obviously the the seventy two yarder or whatever it was at Oregon that Penix just put right on his hands that would have been Penix's best throw that game if he hadn't made the throw to Taj Davis later. So I just think like Jalen Polk from even from the time he arrived when Jimmy Lake was still the head coach and the way that his teammates talked about him and the coaches talked about him, that like he was just this instant like injection of positivity into the locker room that he was a guy that teammates really respected because he worked really hard and he kind of set the standard by example. And he was just this very, you know, upbeat, encouraging type of leader. And, you know, I, I think he's only gotten better physically too. He ran, I know they, it's, it seems like it's become more popular over these last year or so to, to trot out the GPS times. I think GPS tracking his, taken over in college football and that the top like football speed and miles per hour is becoming pretty ubiquitous, maybe not quite as much as 40 times, but like Washington tracks all that stuff. And, you know, Jalen McMillan, I think we all know that's a guy who can run, who's, who's pretty fast, who speed is an asset for him. 
his top speed was 23 miles an hour uh, this this summer or spring, which is really moving. And Jalen Polks was 22.9. So he's a uh, he can he can run. He's got really reliable hands. He gets open. He's physical. Um, he's a guy who is going to maximize his his physical abilities. You know, put it that way. I think he's, you know, if they ever had to roll into a game with him as their primary target, I think people would still feel pretty good about that. Do you think there's an advantage to the GPS times instead of conventional 40 times? I got to think so. I mean, it's, you're literally, it's, it's literally a direct measure of how fast a player is on the field, right? Like that, the one thing that, that, that the 40 time can't account for, right? The one knock, like if a guy doesn't run a great 40 time, what's the first argument against it? Well, just watch him play. I mean, I think of like Taylor Rapp. I'd be really curious mm-hmm. to see where Taylor Rapp would have measured out on the GPS because his 40 was, you know, that was a story, right? It wasn't, it wasn't as fast as you'd like to see from a safety who's going to be taken on day one or day two. But watch that guy's tape. Like he covered ground. He closed fast. He he is such an instinctive player, and you know you you never saw him running in a game in college and thought, oh, Taylor Rapp's a really oh he's a really good player, but geez, he's just not fast enough. Man, that guy's just a little too slow to play safety. Like you never thought that. So I would have been really I would have been curious to see kind of what his what his high end speed. I, I bet his football speed, his actual on field speed, would have been tracking along with with basically anybody they had in that secondary. Yeah, it makes sense, right? Like that. Watching a guy on the how he plays on the field is more important than than seeing the the baseline from a starting from a, a standstill position. But it's interesting how tied into sort of that that base measurement of the forty yard dash that NFL teams are in evaluation. And if you're a college team, I'm not I'm not sure if it's as important because for an NFL team, you're basically you're trying to get sort of understand like does this guy have the physical tools like j- just his raw physical ability like where w- what's what's the potential I'm dealing with here which is really what the forty yard dash is 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 designed to do but if you're if you're a college football team like the difference between a wide receiver who runs a four six and a four four really isn't nearly as important as how that guy plays on the field like you're 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 not making as fine you're not parsing as fine when it comes to prospects and recruiting and honestly you don't I mean I guess you care some about how that guy profiles in the NFL but not nearly as much I'll I'll be interested to see if if we do start moving to a world in which speed is given like if we have top end mile an hour like he reaches the top end speed if that becomes something people start pointing to well isn't that the um the the nfl next gen stats isn't that part of it that he he reached this top speed on this run yes but nfl teams don't give a rip about that when it comes to a defensive end and i'm not i'm not sure how much they care about it with a wide receiver either or a corner because the reason they like 40 times is because it shows acceleration, right? Like it gives you an idea, not just of how fast does the guy get going, how quickly does he get going that fast. Running backs, I could see running backs like that becoming a top-end speed that they care about for running backs, but it's 
I, I still, and maybe maybe it is just the old Moneyball things that you see. I think that's something they might tell to people more than they tell to, like, that they use internally. Like, in baseball, exit velocity has become something that teams reference. I'm not sure if top-end speed is going to become something that football teams reference when it comes to scouting. Yeah, I could I could see that. I mean, in the 40 time, like the vertical, like the broad jump, it's all just hey, here's a here's here's another method by which to like sketch a profile of how athletic this guy is. And I know even at Washington like they they test the the broad jump and the vertical jump and like you'll hear coaches talk about gains made by players in the offseason and they'll they'll reference those two those two events a lot. I know they really feel like the broad jump is is a pretty good measure of explosiveness. Um, and the same with the vertical. You know, like, when are you ever going to leap 40 inches directly into the air in a football game from a standstill? Like, probably never. Um, so it's it's not it, similar to the 40, I think. It's not a it's not a measure of, you know, oh, we, we need this guy to do this for us on a football team. It's, okay, how athletic is he? How explosive is he? So I heard, um, I forget if it was DeBoer or Ryan Grubb say the other day that Michael Penix had nearly a, a 10 foot broad jump this off season. That that's is, that is an important measurement that teams look at too. Like, and that's one that people don't realize, but like the explosiveness that shows in hips, that's something NFL teams fixate on, especially, especially with linemen. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that like that, that show of athleticism, like actually will be important for Penix. I heard so he was doing an uh Ryan Grubb was doing an interview on KJR the other day and they were asking him about you know if if Penix might show more in the in the running game this year that like they felt like that was something you know that that he had in his bag even though he's always been a pass first quarterback but and I kind of I get kind of forgotten about that even as like a factor and I just I I wonder if Washington fans even care to see that or if it's just like no 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 just just throw the ball. They they got some running backs. They got some people who can carry the football. Like don't you know you don't need to put be putting that guy at risk ever. It's an interesting question because my reaction, my initial reaction is like you don't want him moving around because you don't want him getting hit. Like I mean that's it, it's not really about. I think mobile quarterbacks are like it's an incredible asset to have. Penix, my entire reaction is like I don't want him getting hit. I don't want him doing things that will get him hit. Um, I think it's, I, you want him running that offense. And so <laughs> I hope he tests really well when it comes time for the, the, the combine and all of that stuff. And I hope he doesn't have to run pretty much at all during the, the college football season. Uh, and you know, unless it's on a, a double reverse throwback pass no. being thrown by a receiver or something. Maybe, but even then, like all things being equal, maybe just not get him hit. There's a lot of really good guys. We've just spent time talking about how great their top three receivers are. Like that they've got, they, I mean, I think they have the best trio of receivers in the conference, which is really saying something in that, in, in, in the Pac-12. I, I don't, I don't need him catching passes. I don't, they've got, they've got a good group of running backs. Is the, is the, is the kid from Mississippi State healthy yet? Is he, is he out there running around? Yeah. Yeah. He looks healthier. He did more on Tuesday probably than what we'd seen 
uh, not not probably definitely did more on Tuesday than any any point in camp. So I think See, they... we don't need him running, Christian. We don't need yeah. him doing anything. No, just just drop back, take your five and your seven step drops, and let it fly. <laughs> uh, I talk about those top three receivers. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm starting to wonder at what point. And they'd have to prove it on the field once the season starts, of course. But at what point you lump Jeremy Bernard and Denzel Boston into that group as like they've got a legit like five true playmakers? Because man, Jeremy Bernard on Tuesday's practice. This is is this the pass from Dylan Morris that everybody's been talking about? Well, there were like four. I mean, he was just like, and they were great throws by Morris too. I mean, he deserves credit. Dylan Morris had a great day. But man, he got Bernard was open, and he just he just looks like a natural. I mean, he looks like somebody you'd guess he's been playing college football longer than he has. You could see why they were so excited about him. Um, you know, even coming out of high school, and they thought that they were actually gonna gonna get him out of high school. And then Denzel Boston isn't backing off either. I mean, it just seems like not a practice goes by where that guy's not making a play down the field. So it's uh, it's uh, I was I was curious to see kind of how those true freshmen. We're going to look this camp because those are some really highly rated guys, Tayshawn Lyons and Rasheed Williams, and they've gotten some chances here or there. But, um, man, the top of that depth chart is just – it's it'll be interesting to see if they can stay healthy and be able to work with, with all of those pieces at once um, throughout the season. But it's it's just hard to hard to imagine how they could be in a better place at receiver. Well, that actually, as you were talking about it, kind of cued me – towards something I've been thinking about because of our friend Ian McFarland. Now, I've talked a lot about all of the different things that you might be able to try uh, for sales, and I realize that I probably don't know much more than what I've seen on The Wire, which is like you get a different brand name, you got that WMD, you put out some testers. But if you wanted someone to provide like actual real-world experience and some 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 true uh, stone cold sales killing advice. I, I think that you would be well served by talking to Ian because he seems to know what he's talking about when it comes to his stuff with his team at ipmcfarland.com. And each week he gives us something to talk about. It's worth a conversation with Ian McFarland. Good morning. Um, this is a little bit of an odd one, given the, the notes that Kalen DeBoer is striking right now. But what does UW need to do this year to give him some rope for these first few seasons within the Big Ten? Um, my feeling is that he's incredible and that he was a gift to, uh, to the University of Washington relative to the other candidates that were up there. But I also know this fan base, and I feel like last season – from from Socrates' point of view, would have been more about the absence of pain than real pleasure. So I could see a couple six and six, seven and five seasons in the Big Ten really turning the fan base on him. What does he need to accomplish? Is it ten wins? Is it a conference title? Is it, what gives him the legitimacy to to ride through what will undoubtedly be a much tougher wave in the first few years of the Big Ten? Be good, fellas. Talk to you soon. The reason that I thought of Ian's question while you're talking, if Washington has five top flight receivers, the best thing for the Huskies will be to 
turn their offense into a showcase for what players can do. Especially if you're going to have a scenario where two of your receivers, and certainly the hope is Romo Dunze, are positioning themselves to be drafted pretty highly. Like the best thing for Washington and for Kalen DeBoer would be to distinguish themselves as they prepare to go to the Big Ten as a place that quarterbacks and receivers want to play because of the volume of stats and opportunities that come their way. Like that's that's the biggest thing. And it's not like it's not like it's going to be easier in the Big Ten. I mean, clearly, but you've got teams that play a different style. Like Michigan Michigan with Jim Harbaugh is never going to play like Washington does with Kalen DeBoer. Ohio State clearly has I mean, you look at the receivers that they've churned out into the NFL, um, and you you see what a you can di- differentiate yourself. You're not going to compete with Ohio State necessarily, but you can be in that next tier of good destinations for receivers or quarterbacks who don't get the opportunities that they want. It strikes me that Kalen DeBoer is going to be someone who's really receptive to guys in the transfer portal and providing those sort of opportunities to and a place to showcase your ability as a skill position player. Like I would answer, that's the biggest thing he can do to to sort of buy himself or to improve Washington's opportunities and what's going to be a pretty tough road to begin com- competing in the Big Ten, especially when you don't have the war chest of those other schools. Yeah, I would totally agree. I mean, what you, you see it said like all over Twitter every draft day, wow, this, you know, everybody watches the NFL draft and this first round was basically just an advertisement for Georgia football, for Ohio State football, for Alabama football. If you're talking about potentially an edge rusher, a quarterback, and maybe a receiver or two who are, I mean, we just went down those top 100 lists and all those guys are in the top 50 on one of them. So you're talking about three or four guys who could who could position themselves to at least get first round consideration. And if multiple go off the board, then yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big statement about where the program's headed. I think more, I mean, just looking at it more in terms of outcomes, I think anything other than a total flop this year is going to have people feeling pretty good about going to the big 10. Now, if they fall short of the PAC 12 championship, I think that it's fair to consider that a disappointment considering what the expectations are. They are a preseason top 10 team. There is another Pac-12 team ranked higher than them in that preseason poll. So you could argue there's at least one team in the conference that should have even stronger aspirations to win a league title for whom it would be an even bigger disappointment if they didn't. Oh, but but it's USC. They always fail to live up to expectations. Yeah, fair enough. But Washington's in that realm, you know. Mm -hmm. And and with Kalen DeBoer's pedigree and as many – league and national championships as he competed for and won at Sioux Falls and and just kind of what his expectation is for what his program should be. I know I guarantee you if they don't win a league a conference title this year, he'll tell you that it was a disappointment. When you look at what's going to happen when they go to the Big 10, and I'll say this that the idea of being disappointed or thinking you're going to need to ratchet up no matter what happens this season or the next couple of years, the idea that you're going to need to upgrade from Kalen DeBoer like, I'm going to fight that tooth and nail. Anyone who starts to think that. Because mm-hmm. A, you're not going to have the war chest. Like, you're competing in a conference where to start with, you're going to have half the TV money 
as the teams that you're competing against. The much bigger fear here is that Kalen DeBoer gets wooed by someone with more dollars. Um, the second part is you mentioned the the lineages of of success that Kalen DeBoer has had. Like, sure, it's at, it's at lower divisions, but at every place that he's been, his offenses have hummed, and he's won. What is the best way to navigate this thing? It's sticking with a guy who has had has given you no reason to 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 question exactly what sort of long term results he can achieve, and if that means sort of biting the bullet a little bit, I'm trying to temper any of the sort of idea that like, well, we'll see how it works out when when we get there because. Washington is really fortunate to have him as a head coach. <laughs> and I, I have seen how either impatient or intolerant some of the fan base can become. And that is not going to be the way to navigate this going to the Big Ten. It is going to be to lean absolutely into the continuity that you can hope to achieve with Kalen DeBoer. I always said this later in Chris Peterson's tenure when, and I I don't want to like represent this portion of the fan base like it was nearing a majority in any way i would imagine it was a pretty limited minority but kind of starting to wonder gosh has chris peterson lost some juice does he still have it yeah he won a couple of conference titles and got him to the playoff and the new year's six games but they weren't as competitive in those games as you wanted him to be and they're the guy like are they going to be able to take like the next next step under under chris peterson is this are they maybe topped out and the way that I always like to put it, it was that at no time during his Washington tenure was Chris Peterson closer to being fired than he was to receiving a lifetime contract. Yeah. Even even by the end of 2019, okay, they've taken a step back, blah, blah, blah. He was more likely to receive a lifetime contract than he was to be fired. And he, Kalen yes. DeBoer's not there yet, but... He, I think he has that kind of respect in across the athletic department and not just from his boss, not just from Jen Cohen, but I think from the entire administration, I think from all the other coaches at all their other programs who know that they benefit from the football program being strong. Like I think everybody at UW feels really, really, really good about the fact that Kalen DeBoer is their head football coach and so what I mean to say is that like Chris Peterson, and of course he doesn't have the pedigree that Chris Peterson had coming in, he'd won 92 games in eight seasons at Boise State, but he he has that um, that respect and that clout that one six and six season, a seven and five season and a five and seven season can't really diminish because the administration believes in his foundation and believes in the culture and his principles and his values. And, um, you know, I think they feel like he installs a floor for that program that's so much higher than the unknown that I, I don't know what it would take. I mean, and again, the way the administration views it and the way a portion of the fan base views it are, are always going to be two different things. Ian's question was more about how, how fans look at, look at him. Mm -hmm. I would think it would take it would take a pretty massive flop this year and like the next year for people to feel like, mm, gosh, going to the Big Ten. I don't know. I don't know if DeBoer's the guy because, geez, if 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 he's not, then who would be? You know, right? Yes. Who, who's it? Who would be attainable? And that idea of 
how are you most likely to get to the the place of, of where you want to be competitively in the Big Ten? Is it what would it take to believe that it's starting over? And it it would it would take more than a disappointment this year and a really rough next season for me to start feeling that way. Like I I can't I can't conceive of a scenario short of striking a player on the field um in which in which I start to to reconsider that over these next 2 years because look man <laughs> anybody that's been around Washington football now for the past 20 years has watched as there've been some really unfortunate situations some of which the school is to blame for the institution Tyrone Willingham some of which the coach was to blame, which I would say was the case of Rick Neuheisel slash what Keith Gilbertson was handed. Um, and then and then there's something like Jimmy, Jimmy Lake, which I don't blame Jen Cohen for, for what happened because I think everybody was pretty much on board with handing the program to him given, given what he'd done as an assistant and how things had been. And I give her a lot of credit for pulling the plug, but there's just... It sure looks like Kalen DeBoer has got a pretty complete vision and system for what he wants to put in place. Has been way better, way sooner than anybody had any right to expect. And you're getting ready to go into a situation in which, look, it's going to be really hard for this school. It's going to be really hard for the next broadcast tenure. And that's probably the thing that has bothered me the most about the reaction to the move to the Big Ten has been this feeling of, we won, we won, we did it. And I'm like... No, man, what we signed up for is going to be really hard. I get, and there's, there's going to be a lot of real severe challenges. And the best bet, the best bet here is going to be to stick with the guy who looks like he's brought a complete program with him. Like that's going to be the best bet as opposed to let's go get, because we've seen what the next hot new flavor can produce. Nobody objected to Tyrone Willingham becoming head coach. Nobody objected to Jimmy Lake becoming head coach. And look what happened. Like when you get a good coach, don't talk yourself out of it. Uh, I I think too, like there's always going to be the little, like the more minor storylines where, you know, people were really not pleased with the defense last year. And you started to hear some rumbling about, well, there's, is this defensive coaching staff? Are these the right guys? Is this a prove-it year for them? Which I think the fact that everybody got two-year extensions should tell you, like, well, probably not. I could, probably aren't, like, major changes coming this year unless something, you know, really terrible happens on that side of the ball. But, I, you know, there's always going to be nitpicks and, and valid criticisms of the head coach, even from people who would never in a million years say like oh he's the wrong guy he needs to be fired like there's always there are always going to be opinions out there about okay yeah like super super thrilled that Kalen DeBoer is the coach but would like to see Washington recruit at a little bit higher level in the next class so happy Kalen DeBoer is the coach want him to stay forever but would like to see Washington return to being like a dominant national top 20 type of defense so you're always going to have that and I do think that maybe some of those criticisms reach a fever pitch if it's either worse or not as speaking about the defense now either worse or not like dramatically improved from last year um you're going to start to see some questioning of like you know, kind of similar with with Chris Peterson it's not like Chris Peterson never fired anybody he did 
but one of the biggest criticisms of him was that he was maybe loyal to a fault that he had his guys and he yeah he wanted to give them some leeway and let them that maybe maybe there were a couple positions whether it was recruiting or on field performance that he he allowed mediocrity for too long where a more cutthroat head coach at a more cutthroat institution would have made the change like that. So I think that's still the jury's still a little bit out on Kalen DeBoer that way. I think what we know about him so far would tell us that he won't hesitate to make what would be what could be categorized as a cutthroat decision. If he feels like that's what they need to do to have a better chance to win more games. Um, But you know, we we there's there's just still there's some data that's TBD that could we couldn't possibly know yet after one season and and you know one and a half or so years here of him being in charge. Okay, I'm gonna make a pledge because this is I'm not gonna rip on him for being loyal to a fault. Like I'll observe that maybe maybe a more cutthroat coach could make a change here. I want the coach like if, if there's going to be like a margin for error here. Like, what I want is I want to indulge that coach who's more patient. And the reason is because you need, at at Washington, your best bet in making a successful transition to Big Ten football is going to be to get a guy that sticks with you in spite of potentially getting more lucrative and better opportunities elsewhere. And what people never understand when they start saying that, like, Chris Peterson should have been should have been tougher on he should have fired Jabron Hamden sooner he should have had like somebody other than Bob Gregory installed at linebacker like all of the different things that I've heard over the years here's what I would say Washington was and I, I don't mean to cut you off here but it's you know you are super duper deep in Seahawks history when you miss ID Bush Hamden as Jabron Hamden (laughs) <laughs> did i do it yeah you gotta be i mean you gotta be just steeped in obscure seahawks knowledge to even make that mis- even be in a position to make that mistake oh that's funny <laughs> that's it's really more hilarious. it's like more respectable than than just naming him correctly honestly <laughs> when people were mad at bush hamden and i'll admit that i was one of the people that complained about him the best bet for washington washington was fortunate that chris peterson took the job like he is like Washington, Washington's coach left and they upgraded, which is not something that Washington would normally expect to be in a position to do. And that idea that like, oh, get somebody who's more cutthroat in there, get somebody that's more. Well, OK, if you do that, how long are they going to stay at Washington? Like, I'm just honestly saying, like, if you get that person who is that that sort of we are going to be a top of the food chain, we're going to make Ruth. They're not staying at Washington. They're not going to like if that's what that person's mo is, if that's what they're what they're looking to do, they're going to move when they see a better long term opportunity for them. And by the way, like those are out there. And if you're sitting there, well, you take Washington to the top. Like you're living in a fantasy world. Like there are there are repercussions that go there. Washington's best bet here is to have Kalen DeBoer build his program, feel supported, and feel like. There's not another place that I want to go to because I might be forced to make decisions I don't want to make, right? Like to feel like I I like what I have here. I have the support of the administration. I have the trust of the administration. Like that there, I'm not being, (laughs) I'm not being forced to make decisions that I don't really agree with. So that's what I would say. Like 
I'm going to promise not to be that person that's complaining. Even if the defense stinks this next year, I'm not going to be saying like if if he doesn't make changes this offseason, I don't know about his is is you can you could we can we could log this as a time capsule and anytime I attempt to rant in that direction, we can bring it up that I promise not to do that. And I I should just reinforce like we don't know that he's loyal to a fault. We don't know like I I don't want to make that assumption. He's got guys with him who have been with him a long time, but he's had a lot of success with them, right? They're, like, I think last year was probably the first time, and I don't I shouldn't say that because I'm not, like, super familiar with what the fan chatter at Fresno State was during his two years there, but I got to imagine it was pretty positive since they won 10 games in his second season and Jake Hayner threw for a bunch of yards and everything. But, he like, he hasn't been at a point at a major program with a huge fan base where there's been a ton of pressure on him to make some kind of change. Like, again, there were there were mumbles, there were murmurs last year about the defensive side and, uh, like, uh, shouldn't, you know, how much of this are you going to tolerate? But, like, it was year one. They had a ton of injuries. They inherited a roster that, that was recruited to a different system. They're getting their guys in there. They're getting their system set up. It would have been silly to make any changes after last year. But if things don't improve this year, you're going to hear that. And, like, you know, we can set aside whether any of that potential criticism will be like fair or not. It's going to be there if they aren't a lot better defensively. And so I like, I think that's, I'm just trying to mine for like potential areas where people could start to get a little nitpicky the way they did with Chris Peterson. That's one where, you know, just the, the shape of the staff. And then also the other way, right? Like you're going to lose Ryan Grubb at some point. Mm-hmm. Jamarcus Shepard is, I'm sure, going to be in extremely high demand. Scott Huff has been in very high demand. Um, if and when you lose one or two or all of those guys, you know, how do you react? Because I think the consensus is that he, he brought with him a pretty good staff um, and was able to to put together a pretty good staff. He responded to losing Junior Adams by hiring Jamarcus Shepard. That's the only, like, actual replacement hire he's had to make so far, and it was a home run. So can he keep that up and, you know, can he, is his network and his, the, the respect that he has in the industry such that when they have to replace guys, whether it's because they left voluntarily or whether because he had to make a move, can he upgrade and, you know, can he, can he go get somebody who's going to be like a value add and move the program forward and all those sorts of things. So not, that's not a question that, He's had to deal with yet. They were fortunate to retain everybody from last year. Um, that that offensive coordinator piece, I think, will be especially interesting. Uh, you know, it's upon hearing Kalen DeBoer was hired as Washington's coach. I think people would have mostly given like the credit, whatever credit for for what happened offensively at Fresno State to Kalen DeBoer. I don't think it was until like people here really kind of got to know what Ryan Grubb was all about and hear him talk about the offense and see DeBoer kind of push him out front as, you know, almost like the head coach of the offense sort of Mm -hmm. and recede into the background, like not feeling like he needed to step forward and say, you know, have the ego to say, but I'm Kalen DeBoer. This is my system. I was running it before Ryan Grubb knew it. Um, Even though I think that has to be the truth, (laughs) right? Like the, this, yep. this is Kalen DeBoer's offense, and and Grubb has taken it and put whatever you know mad genius twist on it. Gave you last year's results, but um, that'll be you know how they navigate that and who the play caller will be once Grubb's gone and all those sort of things. That's I think that's going to determine a, a lot of how how fans continue to view this system and and the DeBoer tenure long term. The way the way Ryan Grubb 
has sort of been presented and it's weird to say it that way because it makes it sound like like Kalen DeBoer is like showcasing him but he kind of is like a college coach can be more restrictive like his coaches are going to respond to his cues on how available they are to the public and how they talk about things the way that Ryan Grubbs sort of expertise and impact has been promoted reflects a tremendous amount of confidence on Kalen DeBoer's part. Confidence in both himself and in Ryan Grubb. And this kind of started talking about, hey, that your your best opportunity going to the Big Ten is to showcase what a fun place Washington is to play. By the same token, the best way to attract the best assistance is to show that they will be showcased and developed is to show that this is a place where you can go and get the opportunity and the exposure that will help boost your coaching profile. Whether you want to become a coordinator somewhere down the road, whether you want to become the head coach, whether you want to stay here and see how you move up the organization here. Like those are the best things that you can do. The way that Ryan Grubb has been showcased and the opportunities that he's gotten like those reflect in my mind really, really positively. The worst coaches are the ones who sort of like coach one voice is what I always called them. They're like, I speak for everything in the program. You ask me about everything in the program. And there's a little bit of, okay, there's responsibility that's assumed there. There's also control that's being taken. I'm going I'm to keep it mysterious who's responsible for what. I'm going, and guys, coaches can become resentful on the staff because of that because they're like how i've got a career i've got ambitions i've got things that i want to do too and am i getting am i getting a chance to move toward those in this position even if they're winning i just there isn't anything that kaylin DeBoer's done in the year plus that he's been at washington that's made me think anything other than he's going to be a stud and washington should embrace and relish the opportunity to have him for as long as he's willing to stay here yeah, and I think if anything, the move to the Big Ten makes it so that like he doesn't feel like he needs to take the Purdue job because they can pay more money and that grants him access to the Big Ten. You know, <laughs> he doesn't feel like he needs to take a job that's in the that Big Ten but not Ohio State or Michigan or Penn State or Wisconsin or Nebraska. Nah, like would... the mid the Midwest thing, it'll be interesting to see like how drawn he is to the idea of being head coach at like a traditional Midwest power because you know if Matt Rule doesn't work out in Nebraska and Nebraska comes open won't matter that Washington's in the Big Ten like you can you can bet that if he's got it rolling still or he's still pretty highly regarded nationally like you're gonna hear Kalen DeBoer's name thrown out for Nebraska down the road is Nebraska a good job yeah I feel like we talked about this last year when when it happened already um it pays well is it a good it's, job? It's a good, it's a good way to set yourself up financially for life. Man, like you look at the guys that have gone there and it's a pretty wide range of people now that have gone there with various levels of support and commitment. I, <laughs> I don't know, man. I mean, like Bo Pelini is kind of a weirdo and a jerk or, or whatever is like what, what people kind of felt about it. But then you've got Mike Riley, who's the nicest guy ever, and that didn't work either. And then you've got like the hometown hero, the guy with like Scott Frost with this huge amount of institutional equity that's there. And that really didn't work out. And now you've got Matt Rule, who 
in college football, like what he was able to do at Temple and then what happened when he went to, and okay, maybe he's just not a, a pro coach like he was at Carolina. If he doesn't work out there, like I'm really not sure what exactly you do because they've kind of tried everything. Well, you throw the bag at Kalen DeBoer. That's, that's what you do. <laughs> Good God. I mean, seriously, like if, if you had a crystal ball right now and you just said three years down the road, Matt Rule ain't it. And it just, he, or he realized that this job's not that fun. I don't like it. Or he had success and wanted to go back to the NFL or whatever. He's gone three years from now. Nebraska's hiring again. And Kalen DeBoer's clout nationally is exactly what it is right now. You don't think he'll be candidate number one. You don't think he'll be on the top of every list for who's here's who Nebraska should go after. Oh, he certainly will. He certainly will. I just wonder if there's a point where coaches are like, you can't pay me enough to take that job. That place is a graveyard. Yeah, I mean, I I think Washington is, is it weird to say it's it's almost like a, a best kept secret? I, I, I don't know if that's quite accurate. I think that it's the type of job that a potential head coach doesn't necessarily understand, like just how good you can have it when you've got it rolling good there. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe some of that's just West coast stigma. Like, well, could you, you know, can you really realize that sort of dream on the West coast at any school? It's not USC or whatever. Cause Washington's not a, it's not a win 10 games or else program. Mm -hmm. And let's like, I, I want to go back to you when you brought up Jimmy Lake. It's important to remember, like, Jimmy Lake was not fired because they went four and eight no. or because they were four <laughs> and five. Like, and he wasn't fired for pushing a kid on the sideline. He was fired because the vibes were off. He was fired because he just, it wasn't it. He just wasn't it. It wasn't working. If you talk to enough people in that program, you just got to, like, this just doesn't feel right. This isn't right. This isn't what the program should be. This guy's not, this guy's just not it. It's just not going to work. Uh, say who say pod is up to 211 reviews ratings. I should say on Apple podcast, still holding on to that five-star rating, still waiting for sainted nine to slide that thumb a few spots over. Oh, and get he that, gave us the two stars two star off the ledger. Although I kind of enjoy that. We've got a two star up there and we're still holding strong at five. The, ma- the majority <laughs> wins out. We're grading on uh, the curve here. Before we go, I do want to bring up one thing that's really weird about Matt Rule, which I think should prohibit him from ever getting a job in the NFL again, no matter how successful he is at Nebraska. Did you ever read about the like three-page paper that he wrote as the Panthers head coach as kind of like a mission statement for the organization? No. No, so he I wrote, want to, though. Yeah, he wrote kind of about like what it meant to be a Panther and what they were about. Um, <laughs> so he talked about his mission, but this is – I'm reading directly from it. Pepsi tastes like Pepsi 24 hours a day. We have a brand at the Panthers. This brand defines us both on the field and in everyday life. We are the toughest, hardest working, most competitive team in the NFL. It was our plan to win was the name of the document. Here's why you should never be a head coach in the NFL again. Who uses Pepsi there? Yeah, that that was the first thing that stuck out. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like this. Have you seen Breaking Bad? Yes. The the scene in Breaking Bad when he's he's uh, right before or after he forces the guy to say his name when they're meeting out in the middle of the desert where he's like, your stuff is weak. Like he's like, we make classic Coke. <laughs> like I'm the this is the original. What if he was like, we make classic Pepsi. Yeah, you're a, like you're that. a joke. 
that's the whole thing. I was like, why would you define the number two band brand? Why would you, why would you pick that? Like, why would you, it must be because you really think Pepsi's superior in which case, like I, I really question whether or not you're the guy to be leading this team. Why Pepsi? Maybe he just doesn't think the Panthers can be Coke. Like exactly. Like, there's, there's exactly. Already, there's already a Steelers and the Patriots and like they're <laughs> we're not we can't be Coca-Cola, but we could be Pepsi. See, I could understand RC Cola. Like if you went RC Cola, you're like a boutique sort of niche. Like there's a very specific group of people that love RC Cola and we're gonna do th- but Pepsi, you're just like if you're setting the bar at Pepsi, that's kind of weird. It's kind of strange from a marketing perspective. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's the sort of stuff you get from me today. Now I, I now I, I feel like I've missed the boat by not writing like a mission statement for Onmont. Like <laughs> maybe that's just what the about page is. What, but yeah, what, what about a mission statement for say who say pod? <laughs> which it yes. would be, which it would be that you get one seasoned veteran journalist. Someone who is experienced and respectful and covering all the nuances of Washington football, and one increasingly unhinged late forties guy who's not sure exactly what he's doing and will just haul off and call someone an orifice when he feels like it. Well, listen, you've still you've put in more time as a reporter than I have. Yeah, I think that's true. But then I went to radio. It's all muddled, man. It's all muddled. Like my brain is a my 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 brain is a is a mystery at this point. Well, what the hell am I doing? I'm sitting in a 90 <laughs> You're being a pro. You're being a pro. You're providing very competent coverage of a team on a daily basis. On MontLake.com, readers know exactly what they're going to get. If you're reading the dang apostrophe, you're not quite sure because I might rant for 1,700 words on the Johnny Manziel documentary. And the next day, I might talk about Michael Orr. And then I'll get on a podcast and call Jimmy Lake an orifice. But I think that's uh, that's why you subscribe to the dang apostrophe because you never know what you're going to get. I did. I I was glad you wrote the the Manzel thing because I just watched that too. the The one thing I felt like was really missing was any mention of like, did you try to talk to Kevin Sumlin? There was no mention of like, oh, Kevin Sumlin declined an interview request. I assume that they did, but I kind of would have liked to hear some accountability from some of the adults in the room, like the head coach who was, you know, kind of supposed to be responsible for making sure that all the stuff that was happening wasn't happening. Yeah. It's an entertaining watch. Like that's what I'll say. And it is hard to remember exactly how big a deal he became so quickly. And then the weirdness where he just had a summer where he was appearing on vacation and at Drake concerts and at something else. And you didn't really understand why that was happening because a college athlete hadn't been able to do that before. We not now know because it was fueled by money that he was getting paid for autographs. But it was it's a very strange phenomenon. And the documentary, like I wouldn't say it's bad. It's just not good because it doesn't go beyond that. And I came away with it from the with a very distinct feeling that he is still in a pretty shaky place. Like he's not. I, I have a lot of questions about how at peace he actually is. Yeah. Yeah, hard to it didn't didn't really go a whole lot below the surface aside from like you wrote just recounting kind of what that two-year period was like. I'd forgotten how famous he was. Yeah. Like like impossibly famous. Yeah, like, like he was way hanging more out famous than you could ever assume that the quarterback at Texas A&M would be. He was he was hanging out with more famous people than Russell Wilson ever has. And Russell's been famous for a decade now. 
Like, but like Johnny Manziel was hanging out with Drake and they were doing like hand signals at each other and dating Instagram models. It was, it was really, it's very strange what happened. I just like, how awesome would it have been at 19 to like get on a plane every weekend to go sign a bunch of memorabilia in a hotel room and walk out with $30,000 in cash? It's so crazy. Like when people will talk, cause they'll, nobody thinks athletes have it tough. Right. And, and I would say that like a, somebody of Johnny Manziel's level of fame, like I wouldn't say like they have it hard because there's a lot of opportunities that open up for you. But if you're 19 years old and could get tens of thousands of dollars at the drop of a hat or get together with all number of famous, attractive women, and you just had to say so like the way, the way that might shape you, it's impossible. I think it's really impossible to understand. I don't know how you could be normal having gone through that. I I think it just has to be like a completely skewing process. Yeah, I mean it's you're you're technically an adult, but we know anybody who's who's your age or my age knows that you're really not at that right. age. You're not your brain's not fully formed. So it's a little bit like it's a little bit like being a child actor, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you yes. come up in Hollywood and your life is plotted for you in a certain way, and you experience things that the average person your age does not experience, like, what are the odds that that you're not going to have some, you know, deleterious effects? Yeah. No, it's t- it's totally true. I, I completely agree with that. Like, the child actor is much more of the uh, of a of a comparison for what it's it's like to go through that. And it's it's just it's not i don't think you have to try very hard to get very far off track when you get that famous that early i firmly believe college athletes should be paid a wage but like when you hear and in that documentary when johnny manzel's father basically says that like he's mad at texas a&m not because they profited so much from his son but because they didn't provide his son any guidance or what he feels is sufficient guidance which is very much at odds with kind of the I think the way I lean, which is that treat the treat players like adults because they're they're earning money like adults where you're like that that has its own issues as well. Like someone who's 19 and having like Johnny Manziel shows what happens when you professionalize that that early. Yeah, it's uh, I, I thought that the his his buddy Nate, who was basically his business manager during that time, um, I thought he had some pretty like mature perspective looking back on it he seems to like he seems to have his head around just kind of how ridiculous all of that was and i thought he made a good point and this is different now schools have these types of folks on staff now yeah because you you can do it above the table but he kind of pointed out like texas a&m simply did not have the resources available for they were not prepared for somebody on their football team to be as famous as Johnny Manziel was. And they did not have the resources to, to deal with that other than trotting him out for donor events and having him sign autographs to help raise $700 million for the school's general fund, but, and fund a stadium renovation. And, um, God, he yeah. made, you, you could easily make a Johnny Manziel documentary, just, just focusing on like the NIL piece of it and how much, for even as as how much he made in those kind of under the table autograph signings, like how much he generated for Texas A and M that he didn't see, and how much he missed out on by 
not being able to do everything above board. Well, they definitely said so. Texas A&M got seven hundred and forty million dollars in the twelve month period around Johnny Manziel's Heisman Trophy. Like it, that's three hundred million dollars more than that school had ever received in any don- in donations in any twelve month period. Like that's wild. Like three hundred million dollars more. So not quite double, but close. Like that is that is crazy. And what you just said is totally true too. That they just weren't prepared for it. The, Colleges, and I'm not sure if Washington, has Washington ever had a no freshman interviewed rule? Oh, yeah. Chris Peterson and Jimmy Lake. So, and, and, and DeBoer does too. Um, he's a little more likely to back off of it. Well, like Peterson would back off of it once, like, oh, Miles Gaskin has clearly been the best running back on the team for eight games. Now he can talk. Oh, Buda Baker's clearly the best player on the team as a freshman. Now he can, t-, you know, DeBoer will back off of it, I think is more likely to back off of it earlier. But yes, I mean, I think most coaches do have that policy. And typically that's been a way to protect younger players from the attention. Like there's also other reasons that coaches do it. Manziel showed that it doesn't matter in a social media era. Like if you've got a player that wants exposure, like they just have social media accounts now, or you have your buddy, Nate, uncle Nate serve as a de facto spokesman who tells all the reporters that you're rich from oil money. Like that was that was wild. That was wild. Like that was just made up out of whole cloth. Like and he didn't. He didn't have oil money. Stunningly effective. Wildly effective. Everybody. Like that, oh yeah, he's rich. It became a defense for the fact that he was. Why would he take thirty thousand dollars for signing autographs? He's rich. <laughs> it actually became a defense. Yeah, it did. Gosh, uh, neither Danny uh, or myself come from oil money so <laughs> if, if you could go ahead like like Jenny man like Johnny Manzel um if you could go ahead and rate the podcast leave a review uh or 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 just just punch that five star rating push us even higher inflate our egos even further tell us tell your friends about us tell your friends about on Montlake tell your friends about the dang apostrophe um and then gather your friends around the laptop speakers next week and listen to episode 66. We'll talk to you then.